Our sermon text today is drawn from the New Testament book of Philippians, chapter 2. You can find this reading on uh, page 921 of the Black Bible, 921. Uh, This December, we've been looking at the passages in the New Testament that speak to the exalted glory and majesty of Jesus. We're trying to understand who it was that was born in Bethlehem. Uh, He was more than merely just a baby. He was a baby, really and truly, but he was also God himself who came on a mission and with a purpose. And so today for this uh, sermon, we're going to look at how Christ used his exalted power in a humble manner for our sake. I'll begin reading at verse 5, and I'll read down to verse 11. This is the word of the Lord. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Amen. John Dixon is an Australian man who earned his PhD at a university in Sydney by studying humility. Now, it's a whole lot easier to study humility than it is to be humble. I think we'll all agree on that, and he would agree too. But he spent years studying humility as it was viewed throughout history, and he wrote this wonderful, it was a dissertation, and then it became a book that's very easy to read, very accessible, which I would recommend to anybody who wants to learn more. He he said that prior to the first century A.D., he could find nobody in the ancient world who spoke positively about humility. He said every reference that he found in the Greeks and the Romans and the other Eastern texts that he examined, everybody either spoke of humility as a neutral thing, something that is forced upon you, like you get humiliated and you didn't really want to, but it was forced on you, or as something that was completely undesirable and terrible and you avoided at all costs. Humility was bad. For all the years of human history, John Dixon found, until the first century A.D. And he asked the question, what was it in the first century A.D. that made the radical change? Because if you think about it today, here in 2023, you could ask 10 people, uh, do you want to be humble? Do you think it's a good thing to be a humble person? And 10 out of 10 are going to tell you that it is. What changed? Was it human nature that changed in the first century? It's okay to laugh at that. <laughs> Human nature doesn't change. You know, it does not change for the better. We, we know that from history by examining. Now, that wasn't what changed. What changed was simply this. John Dixon writes about it. He says it was Christianity. It was Christ that changed the world. 
Here you have, and this text explains it, here you have one who is highly exalted and yet willingly, not by force, not by sheer power of command, but willingly used his power to serve others. He used his power to be humble. And from that point on, from the point of Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection, and the movement that it spawned, people began to talk about humility as a desirable trait. It's actually one of my favorite things about the Christmas story, really, are the, the details of the birth of Jesus that show his humility. Remember, his birth was announced by angels, which doesn't seem very humble until you realize the angels were sent to, as the Jesus Storybook Bible says, to a raggedy bunch of shepherds. Somebody would say, well, God, wouldn't you send it to Jerusalem? Wouldn't you send it to, wouldn't you wait until it could go to Carnegie Hall? Or at least the Lakeland Center? Shepherds? Yeah. In fact, it gets even more humble than that. This baby that was born wasn't in a palace. He was in a stable and he wasn't in a crib. He was in a feeding trough. Yes, he was greeted by people and his birth was celebrated, but it was celebrated by three Eastern astrologers who followed a star to find where he was. Everything about Jesus' birth and his life was humble, humble, humble. Somebody might ask, what in the world was on his mind? What was on his heart? Why did Jesus do that? In this text, what Paul says here gives you a window into the profound mystery of why Jesus did it this way, of why God did it this way. Uh, Verse 5 tells us that this is explaining the mind that is in Christ Jesus, that is the mind of Christ himself. What was on his mind? This tells you. And if you look at your bulletin, there are three things that it tells you about Christ's mind. First of all, it tells you what he considered before he was born. Wow. Secondly, it tells you what he did in being born and afterwards. And then finally, it tells you what he gained by humbling himself. All right, so what Christ considered, what Christ did, and what Christ later gained. First of all, his consideration. Uh, Verse 6 is all about what Jesus did before he was ever born, what he thought about in his mind and in his heart before he was born. Now, this is an amazing mystery. Uh, Nobody else can talk about what I did before I was born. Don't you all agree with that? You can't say, hey, I'll tell you what I was thinking before I was born. Here it is. This, is my, this was my plan before I came into the world on May 6th. Nope. Nobody in history can speak this way. It can be spoken of this, in this way only of Jesus Christ. Because before he was born, before he was born as a man, he already was. In fact, it tells us in verse 6, he was in the form of God, which is another way of saying he had the same nature that God had. Everything that was true of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit was also true of God the Son in the unity of the Holy Trinity. There was the divine Son, the form of God, the very same as God. And yet it tells us he considered or he counted or he thought about the equality with God that he had. 
And he considered that that equality was not a thing to be grasped. Do you see that there in verse verse 6? Clearly, as one scholar says, this is describing Jesus before the incarnation. Because it's only in verse 7 that it gets to the actual incarnation where it tells us that he was born at the end of verse 7 in the likeness of men. This is saying before he was born, Jesus thought about the fact that he was equal with God, that he had the very same nature and form and all the power and all the glory that God the Father and the Holy Spirit had. And yet his thought was, I'm not going to hang on to this for my own advantage I'm not going to use my power just for myself. Instead, I'm determining to use it for the sake of others and for the glory of God. Now, here's a mystery of mysteries, y'all. This is speaking about God's eternal plan to save the world before the world was ever made. And I want you to know that plan is a real plan that the Bible speaks about in many places. Some call it the council of peace. Others call it the covenant of redemption that God entered into with himself. There's many words that are used to describe it, but the basic idea is God drew up the blueprint. Just like we would if we're going to build a building, we would have to have a blueprint with plans. And the more detailed the house, the more detailed the building, the more detailed the blueprint needs to be. I mean, even something like, have you ever put together a puzzle without the picture on the box? There's a challenge for you in the new year. There's a resolution, right? Try to put together a puzzle without the picture on the box. That'd be tough. Plans provide the way of executing those plans, of bringing them into action. And here it tells us God planned everything he did. In fact, all things that occur in this world that are recorded in Scripture and that occur in our world were planned before time by God for his glory and the salvation of his people. And a part of that plan was God the Son saying, I am not going to use my power to my own advantage. It's not a thing to be grasped and to held on to and to not be shared. I'm going to share it. I'm going to give it. And the Father was in perfect agreement, of course. I'm going to send my Son And the Holy Spirit was in agreement. I'm going to overshadow Mary when the time comes. And the child born of her is going to be called the Holy One of God. And he's going to be God's very son to save the world from their sins. There was the plan. Written in more than stone. Written into the very heart of the eternal God himself. Now I want you to hear this this morning for this reason. I know this is a big thought, one that might blow your mind a little bit to think about God planning things. But here's the point that makes so much of a difference in your life if you'll hear it and receive it. If you look around the world and all there is is what human beings do and plan, what do you have? I want to tell you, despair is probably the right response to such a condition. I mean, you think about it. I mean, you don't have to know much of history to know. and You don't even have to know much of the current news to know that what people plan and what people do does not tend towards the good of the world overall. People seem to get their act together for little short periods of time, and then it just devolves back down again. 
Isn't that the way history goes? Uh, One of my professors in seminary who studied philosophy uh, in his uh, college years used to say, if you look at the philosophers through human history, there were periods of optimism where philosophers were thinking we could do a lot and they were very positive about the world. But almost always those periods of optimism were followed by periods of deep pessimism and despair. It was like a spiraling down effect. Think about, for example, the end of the 1800s and the beginning of the 1900s. People thought we were going to make the world perfect, a heaven on earth. We have steam engines. Steam engines. Who can stop us? The world's going to be utopia. And then World War I, World War II, Korea, Cold War, War on Terror. I've only listed a fraction of the dark, ill things that happen. This text is saying it is not just men who plan. And it's not just men and women who do in this world. It is God who plans. It is God who does. His plan is over all and under all. In fact, in that plan was a plan for your good. That God would use his infinite resources for your enrichment. Jesus did not count his equality with God a thing to be grasped, but willingly decided before the world was made to come as our Savior, to spend and to be spent for us. If there's anybody here who's feeling despair this time of year, and I know it's not uncommon to feel this way at any time of the year, but particularly this time of year, I want you to know there is a solution to what ails you. And that solution is in considering that God considered. (laughs) Consider that God considered way before, and he has a plan that he is working out which involves salvation and glory. You can read about how that plan unfolds here. I encourage you, go here. Go here regularly. Go here often. Read of what God has planned. Read his blueprint as it's being put into construction phase in Scripture. And it will do your heart immense good. It is not just men who act and men who decide or women who act or women who decide. It is God. That's the first thing. Christ considered that he would come to be our Savior. But secondly, I want you to see what Christ did once he actually came. And there's more humility here. In fact, deep, deep levels of humility. Notice in verses 7 and 8, Jesus did two things. The first thing he did was he emptied himself. Do you see that in verse 7? He emptied himself. And when you hear that, you might think, all right, Jesus was full of all the godness that he had. You know, he was fully God. And so he took it. He took himself almost like a cup and poured out all the God that was in himself. And that's not the way you should read it. That's not what happened. In fact, it goes on to tell us that this is an interesting thing, but it's true that he emptied himself by taking, not by subtracting. Look again at verse 7. He emptied himself not by ceasing to be God or letting go of his divinity. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He veiled his deity within human flesh. 
he wrapped up his glory, not ceasing to be glorious, but he wrapped it up incognito by, look at verse 7 again, by being born into human form or human nature. He was born in the likeness of men. And there's Christmas right there. Jesus was born in the world, and that was the veiling of God the Son for a time so that he could serve us in humility and win our salvation as a man for men and for women. Wow. Paul goes on. Not only did Jesus empty himself, but once he had emptied himself by taking and by being born, verse 8 He was found in human form, so he humbled himself even lower. Now, I don't know how you can conceive of lower than going from God to veiled as a man. That's low enough. C.S. Lewis famously said, if you want to get a, a little bit of a fraction of it, think about you becoming a slug. Now, that's not because God sees us as slugs. No, he values us more than that. But that's because slugs are very, very, very far below human beings. We'll all agree about that. Think about you becoming a slug and living a life as a slug. That's just a little bit of how far God had to come to be born in the likeness of men. But it tells us that even when he was in the likeness of men, that wasn't low enough. He had to go lower for us. And so he humbled himself by being obedient. Jesus had never had to be obedient before. God obeys nobody. God needs to obey nobody because God is God, right? But here is a son, the son of God, who learns obedience as a man. He he submits himself to a life of simple obedience to his father, which is what we read about in all the Gospels doing everything God told him to do, even to the point of death. He obeyed right to the point of death, and not just death, even lower than that, death on a cross. Which the cross in the Bible means cursed, condemned. It was a capital punishment. It was a way of saying you are guilty and now dead because you're guilty. And the Bible tells us Jesus had to go that low because what he was doing is he was taking all of our sins onto himself and paying the eternal penalty that was required for our sins by himself becoming that curse that we deserve to become. Jesus was going under the weight of our filth, of our mess, of our rebellion and hatred, Though he had done nothing wrong his whole life, that's how low Jesus went. He emptied himself, he humbled himself. Now marvel at that. Do you have a family budget at home? Have you ever done your family budget in the form of a pie chart? I warn you, if you do that, it's, it's scary. There's scary things await you. <laughs> to see how much you spend on X, Y, and Z by by visual aid. Well, think about that. Jesus is showing us what his personal budget is spent on here. He's showing us what he values. Just like your family pie chart would show you, obviously this family likes to eat out, right? They they like being together in restaurants, (laughs) 
This family really values their home because they spend a lot of their money on their house. And of course you do, right? Whatever it is. Here it tells us Jesus spent so much. He left heaven to come to earth. Once on earth, he went beneath the level of any other human being. He went down to the level of the cursed of the cursed. Why did he spend so much? It tells us, for the glory of his Father and for the salvation of human beings. Those are the things Jesus values. And this is an amazing thing. Just to recognize that the God who values his own glory so highly and rightfully so also values us. He values people. There was nothing that he was not willing to give for us. Wow. Now, as a point of self-examination, you got to think about what if you're not your money, but what if your whole life was a pie chart? Just everything you do, everything you say, everything you spend, every, all that you do. What if it was represented in a pie chart somehow? Would the glory of God, your heavenly Father, be a large slice? Would other human beings and their needs be a large slice? It's a great question because this is what Jesus valued. We would not be saved if Jesus didn't value those two things above every other thing. And so if we have benefited by being saved and our sins paid for by Jesus' self-giving, that's, that's even more a guide to how we ought to live our lives with the same two values, the glory of God and the good of our fellow people. These are two things our world struggles with. The world really struggles to value God's glory. I mean, most people look at you cross-eyed if you start talking about glorifying God with your life. What do you even mean? Let's focus on what we can see here. Let's focus on the bottom line. Let's focus on the real world. We saw just a minute ago what that leads you to. No God, no hope. No God, only human actions, therefore despair. But it's also true that in our world, people have a hard time valuing each other. Isn't that right? Most of the time, we value people based on fairly superficial things. How much money do they have? What job do they have? What kind of education do they have? What kind of personality do they have? What do they look like? Various things. None of them go into consideration with God. For God, there is one category for people. Made in my image. Therefore, I valued. Therefore, I came and I died that a multitude of them might be saved. Wow. What do you value? What do I value? Jesus is teaching us how to be humble because he's showing us that it's by his humility that we are saved ourselves and brought back to God. That leads us to our final thing today, what Christ gained. And we see that in verses 9 through 11. Because of his humility, Christ gained great wealth. It was the same wealth he had before he became a human being. So part of, part of us might ask, okay, well, why did Jesus, if Jesus already had all this stuff, if he, if he already had the name above every name before the world was ever made, 
If every knee already should have bowed before him and every tongue confessed, why in the world did he go through all that just to get that again? And the answer actually is very important to your life. It tells us here in verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted Christ. Therefore, because of Jesus' obedience as a man, God exalted him as a man to this high place. Why did he do that? Because of this principle. The king's victory is shared by all the people. It's like the scenes in the movies. The king wins the the victory, parades back into town. Everybody's cheering and praising. Every knee is bowing. But also the spoils that the king has won are being shared. People are getting enriched. The victory of the king is our victory. Celebrate. That's, what Jesus, that's why he did this. He did not count his glory a thing to be grasped because he wanted to share his glory with us. And so he veiled it for a time. He let it go for a time so that he might humble himself and by that humility and by that death on the cross be exalted so that we could be exalted with him. So that we could receive all the blessings of the kingdom of heaven. To put it this way, in that that, uh, council of peace or that covenant of redemption where God decided what to do to save humanity, the Son agreed to come and the Father agreed to bless the Son and all the Son's people if he obeyed and succeeded and he did. Jesus in Luke 22 said it this way, My Father assigned to me a kingdom... He covenanted to me a kingdom. He promised to give me a kingdom. And in the same way, I have assigned to you, disciples, I have have covenanted with you to give you that same kingdom. Because I have been exalted, I'm going to exalt you. Because I have conquered death, you're going to conquer death. Because I have paid for sins, your sins are going to be wiped away, right? Because I had the Holy Spirit and obeyed God perfectly, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit as well to learn how to obey God. Because I am humble, you're going to learn how to be humble. Because I go to heaven to see my Father, you're one day going to go to heaven and see my Father. That's how it works. Jesus Christ went low Because he did not will to stay high without us there with him. And that's got to be the greatest definition of love that you can imagine. That God would not be glorious without us. It's not that he had to. It's that he wanted to share his glory with us, that he sent his son and that Christ came. And so how should we respond to this? Well, it's clear, right? Right right in the passage there in verses 9 and 10, every knee needs to bow (laughs) and every tongue needs to confess. What it says there is a preview of what will happen on the last day, the judgment day. Every knee will, in fact, bow and every tongue will confess whether they have been willing to do so or not. It will happen because God will become blindingly obvious even to people who've tried to ignore him. But here's the great thing. Today we live before the day of judgment. We live in a day of mercy. You can willingly bow your knee and willingly confess with your mouth and be saved. 
To confess with the mouth is to say, he is my only king. He is my only savior. I do not depend on my own works, or I I do not depend on my own good intentions. I don't depend on my own whatever it is that I take pride in, my possessions, my race or ethnicity, my, my position in my company. I mean, I don't know what it is. People take pride in everything. To confess Jesus is to say, I renounce all my pride to depend on only him. And to bow the knee means just as he lowered himself willingly by, to save me, I'm now called to lower myself before him. I'm called to a life of humility and a life of self-denial. And let me tell you, this is the, the, the closing thought that I'll give you today to think about over Christmas. This is the real Christmas spirit, if you want to talk about a Christmas spirit. Right? It's not just cups of hot cocoa and chestnuts on an open fire. If anybody's ever actually had that, I'm not sure. <clears throat> That's not all it is. Here's what it is. self giving love, humbling yourself. Here's what J.I. Packer says about it. He says, look, even many Christians today live basically for themselves rather than for God or others. And in this way, they're ignoring the very heart of their faith. They're ignoring the very heart of what they say they believe. Here's what he says. This is not the Christmas spirit. (laughs) The Christmas spirit does not shine out in the Christian snob. For the Christmas spirit is the spirit of those who, like their master, live their whole lives on the principle of making themselves poor. Spending and being spent to enrich others. Giving time, giving trouble, giving care, giving concern to do good to others, not just to the people closest to you, but to any others that are in your path who have a need. To give of yourself. Listen, the call to self-denial is Jesus' call to us every moment of every day. Because he denied himself to save us, we should want to imitate him in joy. Every day when you have that fight with your spouse, there's a moment for self-denial. When you're struggling to parent the kid that is knuckleheaded, there's a moment for self-denial. When you get up and the alarm goes off too early and you got to go to work for the glory of God, (laughs) there's a moment of self-denial. Right? Everything. When you see that person in need and you know you have something to help them, but you're inconvenienced by the opportunity because it's going to cost you time or money or whatever, there's your moment for self-denial. When you see a person being bullied at school or when you're tempted to bully or whatever, there's your moment. Kids, Jesus calls you to follow him too. All of us. Because he who was so rich, so rich, became poor for me and you. So that by his poverty, we could be made rich. Amen.